Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1175, with guest Mark Miller. Recorded Friday, July 10th, 2015. Oh no, it's .NET Rocks! <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's a great intro. <laughs> Can I jump in oh, now? There's only so many people that are going to get that. Yeah, Mark Miller is here. How are you doing, Richard? I'm all right, buddy. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as you know, this is Monday's minus one, but it is a, going to be a series. This is .NET Rocks, right, Mark? Uh, not the other show? Yeah, I'm still waiting for that invite to become the official host of this show. <laughs> I, I go out and I check my mailbox every day. Guy moves into your town and then wants to move into your podcast. There next. you go. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm hoping those signs I hold outside Carl's studio, you know, willing to podcast for food, <laughs> willing to host mega international podcast for food. You realize you are him. the only guest we've ever let go on this much before we've done Better Know Framework, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Are you guys, aren't you guys supposed to be professionals around here? <laughs> All right, roll that crappy music. Nice. All right, dude, what do you got? I actually have something very cool. I was, uh, as you know, I've got this consultancy app for you next, and we're we're kicking butt and taking names. Nice. And uh, we have a sort of an inner circle that hangs out on Slack. We have a Slack board, great product, by the way. That was another Better Know framework. Yeah, no, big fan of Slack. And um, just, I, I had a bunch of data, you know, not too many rows, but I don't know, a few hundred rows. Row here, row there. Yeah, row here, row there, of um, people, you know, and where they live. And mm -hmm. all I had was cities and states and countries, right? And I didn't have any coordinates or anything. And I wanted to map that out quickly. And, you know, I had done some Google Maps and Bing Maps and all that stuff, but there's a little time to get set up and all that stuff. I want something quick. So I asked the guys, and one of them came up with this. Go to cartodb.com, like cartography, carto, right. C-A-R-T-O-D-B.com. And what this is, it's a place where you can just create a new map and then quite literally drop a CSV file on it that has whatever data you want in it, but if it has city, state, and country, zip code, that kind of thing, it will just turn that into points on a map. Nice. Just boom, like instantly. And then, you know, you get these little dots and you can zoom in and out and hover over the dots and then pick which fields you want to show uh, when you hover. Mm -hmm. It's a very quick and dirty, simple, easy way and free as far as I can tell uh, to – instantly visualize any data that has uh, location information in it. Yeah, I think it's just limited by the size of the data set. 
for you're the probably free. right. I mean, we are talking a CSV file here, but yeah, there yeah. are other ways you can link data and all of that stuff. So I didn't get too far into it, but uh, it was really a really great experience, and I just want to give them a shout out. Nice, yeah, love it. That's a good. Nice find. I did not know about this. I didn't either. Thanks to Brian McKay for that. So. All right, uh, who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment on our show 1027, one we did with one Mark Miller, talking about the biology of the user interface, mm-hmm. uh, which elicited a lot of great comments. This yep. one is from Kelly Cassidy, who said, Hi, guys. This was a great discussion to listen to on my commute f- from home the other day. I'm working on some concepts for a website and possibly associated applications. So the four-degree discussion, that was sort of the view angle discussion that we had, right. was definitely helpful. As mentioned, it's not as critical, for lack of a better term, on a mobile phone as the screen is smaller, and one can generally focus on the entirety of the system anyway. But on a larger screen, I can definitely see the benefit of this type of focus. I do appreciate the commentary that the Western style was there. As working with clients overseas and focusing on different languages, we've had some challenges in figuring out what works best and what doesn't. Because, of course, as soon as you get out of Western style, like this whole presumption of top left, you know, horizontal scanning going downward, it's not always true. Right. I think the biggest challenge is that, though. A focus on the presentation and placement of elements so the user can consume them in a way that keeps them in context, but is also respectful of the language and culture in which the context is presented. It's not always frequent that individuals know all the nuances when developing software. In many cases, software is designed without that even being consideration, in my experience. And when it comes time to expand into another region where the UI layout is different, an extended effort is sometimes required in order to position elements accordingly. Mm -hmm. Some practices, such as the four-degree view, are most likely great practice regardless of cultural location in order to consume the content on the page, and elements like that should be considered from a global perspective. Many UI-focused products that I've read focus on Western culture exclusively and disregard other areas of the world, thus making it much more difficult to expand on those areas. With the Internet and apps being available on a global scale, those types of practices uh, with small cultural tweaks would be a great laundry list of things to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. Just thinking more worldly. And I funny how many times in the past few weeks we've been circling back on this idea of proper localization. I think it's a really interesting challenge. Yeah, indeed. So, Kelly, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our social medias. We post all our shows to Facebook and Google+. And that brings us to the official introduction for Mark Miller. Mark Miller is a five-year C-Sharp MVP alumnus with strong expertise in decoupled design, plug-in architectures, and great user interfaces. Mark is Chief Architect of the IDE Tools Division at Developer Express and is the visionary force behind Code Rush. Mark is a top-ranked speaker at conferences around the world and has been writing software for over three decades. Welcome, Mark. Welcome back. That guy sounds awesome. <laughs> you should have him on the show. I was going to do this. Who's DevX again? But now we're not going to do that. Get no, him. Uh, they've been a great supporter of the show for many, many years, Absolutely. even if you haven't been. I want to. You know what I want to do? <laughs> what? You know what I want to do, Richard? I want to. I want to have the. This is my superpower. You know how people always ask you what what superpower do you want? You know, like heat vision. You know, ability to fly, invisibility. 
I want the ability to just do one of those comedic jumps across the room where you just tackle someone. You come in from off screen and you tackle them and then you kind of go down to the ground. That's my superpower. <laughs> That's what I want. I always thought it was making balloons stick to the ceiling. I'm pretty sure I watched you demonstrate your superpower to some kids. Wait, that's an option? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one. Oh, this could devolve quickly. This we could really be a need long to show. We Should need we to stay on task. Stay you know? focused. On message. Stay focused, kids. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks, Carl and Richard. Glad to be here. Well, we're very professionally happy to have you here. Yay. Otherwise, not so much. But the future of UI. What is the future of UI? Are we going to even call it UI in the future? Um. Yeah. No. I don't know. I think we'll probably kind of. It'll kind of go out to more of a. I like the idea of saying it. Kind of de- calling it design. And but having design, the, the the interpretation of design encompass more than just a static visual image. Uh, encompass traveling through time, moving through time, the experience of the user, the interaction phases as well. That's my vote. I, I'd like to call it that. Um, with regards to what does it look like, um, uh, you know, disappointing fo- news for the folks who are you know trying to get some sort of. Uh, comment from me or, or breakthrough kind of, you know, secret news in terms of what's happening is it's going to look exactly the same as the old stuff in terms of what the rules are. The rules are always going to be the same yeah. because, because the biology is, is until the biology changes, the rules will always be the same. And even then after it changes, the rules will still, the guidelines are still essentially there. And are the rules the same, whether it's a screen we look at versus a hollow lens that's yeah. on our face or it's, versus it's, implants it or whatever? Is. It really is. In fact, in fact, you know the the Hololens. By the way, I, I'm I'm super excited about that. It's it looks so exciting to develop for. Um, I remember seeing in one of the pictures, early pictures for it. I, I think that's all gone now. I haven't seen it lately. But it's you, you see the UI, the words for the UI, and you see them from the back because the viewer is you know in the picture looking at it, and so you can see from the viewer's perspective mm-hmm. the words are aligned correctly and they can read them. But from your perspective, the other viewer's perspective, they're reversed. And I was like, no, 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 that's all wrong. It's 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 okay in a world where we're going to you know create. Uh, you know, virtual elements, a shared virtual experience. It's okay to twist things around so that from my perspective, I can still see them as if I was looking at a flat screen, you know, straight on. Mm. In other words, I putting words up there and then having me walk around, having the words become skewed or the UI doesn't make sense. It makes sense for the UI to always face me as an example, yeah. right? As I'm moving around. And if I have multiple people in the room, it's okay to have each of them see a different version of the UI, the mm-hmm. interaction points, so that they can use them and, and read the data very effectively. In fact, it's even better, one would say, because yeah. that can be customized to everybody's, yeah. yeah. Wow. Which is, I suddenly got this vision of two people wearing hollow lenses working on a spreadsheet in different languages. Oh, sure. yeah. And 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 what I was alluding to is two different places in the room, you know, physically it, it it might be the same general location but the thing is twisted around so everybody can see it, right? Yeah. And it's and all of a sudden now you get to okay, so we have to create a virtual world where there are things that are definitely there that everybody sees and occupy 3D space. Mm-hmm. And there are other things that kind of exist maybe in a sphere within that 3D space, but based on your perspective they're always they're always oriented towards you in a particular way because ultimately um uh uh Interacting with two dimensions, uh, a two dimensional view plane is essentially what we are we're doing in in the real world. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of that's a, I'm already voices in my head are shouting saying no, that's not quite true, Mark. Mm. But the but but when we're interacting, a lot of our interaction is in in two dimensions because we can see the 
when we see things in front of us, even if I'm looking at like my keyboard, for example, which is skewed, right? I, I don't have uh, an obscured view of the keys in the background, right? Everything's laid out so that I can see it and I see where to move my hand. And I have a lot of experience moving my hand through space and getting it to hit the right button through space where, wherever that, that is. But I don't have, there's not a lot of UIs in the world that involve pushing through things that I see, right, to reach in and grab something else. Like maybe the, the, the rare moments of that are reaching my hand into some mud to grab something that fell inside. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Mm. You know, Neuromancer, the, which is a book from 1984. I mean, 1984, the first time the word cyberspace was ever used is in that book. Right. And he talked about, this is William Gibson, he talked about this 3D roaming around computers, right? You put on the goggles and you fly through that. That's what hacking became. It was a sort of three-dimensional exploration. And we've never even come close to using three dimensions for interacting with computers. Yeah. Actually, I did see a great demo, and I think this was one of my better-known frameworks of a guy who created his environment with an Oculus Rift. And so he had a virtual screen when he typed on his keyboard he could see it in front of him on a screen. And so he would build his world. So you saw the screen on a desk and then you saw like, you know, the holodeck, just the grid. And he just, you know, built up all his world around him and you got to watch it in real time at, at a fast speed, of course. But, but I love that idea of just being in the space and creating it at the same time or working with it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you've got your, your, essentially an instantaneous feedback loop, Yeah, which is one of the talking points I, I threw at you guys. I said, hey, we can talk about feedback loop. Well, the thing that gets me is there's so much stuff to talk about when we talk about the science of great design, which is, you know, your your thing you've been working on for, I don't know how many years, but you've been working on a, uh, on a, on a, a course of this and and I've helped you with it and we've been talking about it and I don't know how many years have you been working on this? Um my wife Karen could actually probably tell you to the day. Um <laughs> I don't I don't really track that but I know that it's been a lot of time. You put a that lot I, of time I've spent on it. it. Yeah, so I think it's over I, I I just listened to last the last show we did which I think was in 2014 and I, I'm like, and in that show, I'm talking about how I've worked on it for over a year. So, so, so yeah, I think it, there's been a, it's a lot of time. It's at least a year and a half of I'd work, say two and a half of effort. Maybe, maybe that's true. The production value, part of the reason is, is because I'm talking about the science of great design, every image and every sound that appears in it has to be able to hold up to scrutiny, right? right? Everybody's got to be able to look at that and say, yeah, that's the best way to communicate that concept, that idea, mm. right? So as a result in, in the preparation of this, I was, I, there would be times where I would spend like a day and a half, two days to get three seconds of material just right because mm. it was, there's something moving about it, animation, something going on it's there. It's the curse of film school, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's, and it's the, <laughs> the OCD aspects of it as well. <laughs> Right. It's like, I cannot, you know, and, and, you know, my wife, Karen is like, you're just doing the essence, right, Mark, just the essence. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you're not doing that animated, you know, movie of yourself that you were talking about doing. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do that till later. Like we agreed. And then I end up doing it <laughs> and it's a great animated movie and I love it. And it tells the story and it, you know, it, it gets the point across and it has the, the, the advantages that it aids in retention because you're seeing something different and new, right? Which is part of the point. Anyway. Yeah. I've been working on it forever. And I, and so I submit it and I'll, I'll maybe won't mention the name of the company I submit it to. I've said it in the past, but whatever I submitted to the, the company and the company says, 
So, Mark, um, so we've had some pushback from both our attorneys and our sales team on your course, <laughs> and which is, I guess, not new information for in my life, right? This happens all the time for me, <laughs> right? Where the, the authorities that be come in and say, you know, um, Mark, let's have a talk, you know, about what you've just done. Um, and so the, the objections raised by the company were that, in the course, I'm calling out, I actually identify the companies that are creating the UI, and I'm calling out real UI of large companies that have contracts with this other training company. And so they, they were concerned about that. They were concerned about some of the usage of, um, uh, the, the attorneys were concerned about some usage of uh, some, I think they were saying essentially copyrighted material, but uh, from my perspective, it, it totally fell under fair use. I think the attorney's thing was more of a, of a way of justifying the nervousness that was inside the sales mm, team. So basically yeah. we said, okay, uh, I'll just find another way to, to publish it. And I'm still, still, I haven't solved that problem yet, but uh, working on it. All right. Well, that's good. It's good to hear now. So it is done, but we're just trying to figure out how to get it to market. How to get the saying. information out there. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's what we're doing. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Harvest. Harvest is a time tracking tool built for understanding where your time is going. And for developers, it takes the pain out of time tracking. You can start a timer right from issues in Jira or GitHub without searching for your timesheet. Not only will you understand how much time you're spending on client work, you'll be able to turn your billable hours into an invoice from Harvest in minutes. Harvest integrates with PayPal and Stripe to make it easy to get paid. And .NET Rocks listeners get a special deal. Create a free 30-day trial at getharvest.com, and after your trial, enter code .NET Rocks, spelled out, to save 50% off your first month. So uh, where do we start? I mean, we, I guess we started with some HoloLens stuff. That's all good, but it seems kind of random. But uh, where, where do you usually start with when you uh, talk about this? Okay, I... I, I, I I'm like totally wanting to jump in on the HoloLens thing. One last thing, and then I'll answer that question. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, sure. I just wanted to say, because, you know, we're talking about three-dimensional interfaces. I actually yes. built a three-dimensional interface using the Connect to type in keys from the keyboard. I remember. Have you seen this? You and Juarez. It was gorgeous. Yeah, this was a gorgeous UI. I don't know if you actually saw the one I'm talking about, yep. but yeah. it, it had letters in circles. And as you pushed your hands forward... Right, you would get into the 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 farther away letters circles, yeah. and then you could move your fingers around and tap the ones you wanted to to get. And the idea was essentially to solve the problem: of how quickly could I type in the middle of space? Right, but it you know it, although it was beautiful and gorgeous and used three D, it really it 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 had some problems to it. One is you know we had precision issues. One you had gorilla arms; your arms are out in front of you. It's so right. it's violating some UI principles, which is hey we want to lower the um uh we we want to make things more efficient. And so when Carl, when you ask the question, where do you start? You know, ultimately it's you start at the the idea the the recognition that great efficiency is essentially the guideline to great usability. And so when we talk great efficiency, then we're asking the question of efficiency of what? Efficiency of muscles, muscle movement, of eye movement, right? And efficiency of thought as right, well. Right. Right. And those are really the, the constraining forces. And it, so, so once you're, once you accept that, 
then, then, and you start realizing the rules that derive from that, it doesn't matter if you're talking about HoloLens or if you're talking about creatures from another planet and their, usabil- their usability issues, or you're talking about creating usability for other creatures on this planet, right? Other creatures that sense differently than we do or have muscles that are differently and, different, and slightly different brains, right? It, doesn't, it do- really doesn't matter. The rules are essentially all the same. They apply across all creatures and machines and how they interact. Right, right. So, so that's kind of where you start. You start with efficiency. And then from there, you go out conceptually. One of the ways you can go out conceptually is in the area of time, right? And time, once we add time to the equation, we're no longer talking about now just giving you information that you can consume, like in you know, text displayed on screen, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. We're now talking about that we give the potential for, uh, for uh, interaction, we give the potential for uh, animation, for movies, for uh, audible content right. to come in, right? Right. But even there, audible content falls under the same kinds of rules as visual content. There's There are ways to emphasize audio. I can emphasize, for example, using volume. I can emphasize using white space, right? I can make things stand out in that way. So I can do the same kinds of things to emphasize in audio as I can do with visual. But then with time, one of the things that happens, right, is we are, as humans, right, when we, like, say we see a coin on the ground, we, we reach down to pick it up. And just for a moment, we hesitate. And we, in that moment, we, we, we essentially decide whether to actually pick it up or not. So our fingers are right on that coin on the ground. And in that moment, the brain, the, the time it takes for the brain to make that decision is about uh, 50 milliseconds. 40 milliseconds for a simple decision, right? Yeah. And then we make that decision. We tell our muscles to move. And that's about another, that's about 50 milliseconds right there. So we're about a tenth of a millisecond between the decision and the time our, our, our muscles are moving. And then we get feedback from all the nerves in our body that are sending us that feedback. Like we're actually touching the coin. We can feel it. We can maybe hear it lift up off the sound as it lifted up off the ground. Um, and that takes about a hundred milliseconds to process that. So the round trip between a decision to act and then the ultimate feedback that our actions taking place is about 200 milliseconds. That's for human beings, right? But every creature is going to have the same kind of thing, right? Every creature, in fact, the human brain, right? We think we're all living in the present, but we're actually living in the past. If, if a massive surprising event were to take place right now, like a giant explosion right mm-hmm. here in front of us, Carl, mm-hmm. right? That surprising event would occur, but we wouldn't know about it for a while. And the reason why is because our brains are, in, you know, encased in a skull in total dark, darkness. Auditory processing would be the first to complete. That would kick in first. Uh, and by the way, that's why they start races with a gunshot. Mm-hmm rather than a flash. Yeah. So you get that first, then your visual processing would come in next, then tactile processing would come in next. You know what's intuitive about that, and I'll tell you why, is because, you know, sound travels slower than light, but it's not the fact that light travels faster, it's the amount of time it takes you to process it. Yeah, and we're talking about a huge amount of time compared to the speed of sound, you know, at such a close distance. Right. And so tactile processing completes. That's a whole thing is about 100 milliseconds. The thing that is most amazing to me about the brain, since I've got, and and when you think about this, if I was going to design a creature, I would have this problem, right? I have input for a single event arriving at different times across this 100 milliseconds after the event occurs, Mm. right? I have to synchronize all those events to then tell the conscious part of my brain, 
hey, something serious just happened or something surprising just happened, Mm -hmm. right? So the brain has this synchronization ability as well that occurs. And any creature that's out there is likely to have the exact same thing. You know, if we're talking about creatures from other planets, if they may may exist, what, what would their worlds be like? Similarly, it would be highly likely that the speed of one sense, input sense, is different from another, and their brain would also have to have developed and evolved an ability to synchronize these together so they can logically think what's happening. This is good for me to know because I'm developing software for deer right now. And, uh, you know, I don't rule out any, anything. (laughs) There's no possibility that's ruled out from, from my world. I understand that. I guess sometimes I'm like, I point in direction. I just go way too far. I hear that. I get that feedback. But, you know, I just, I'm not ruling anything out. <laughs> it makes sense across the board with everything. And I guess what's exciting to me about that is that, okay, it's, I only have to remember a few rules and they mm. make sense everywhere with every right. machine, right. with every creature that's interacting with the machine. It makes sense. Now, the thing is this though, Carl, when you reach down and you pick up that coin, you have the illusion that you are manipulating and moving that coin in real time in what your brain believes is real time, right? You can hold things up, you can move them around, and it feels like we're affecting the world in an instantaneous way, mm-hmm. right? What happens when we get onto a computer and we say, hey, I want to, you know, do this action, and sometimes we have to maybe wait, right? Or, uh, you know, we have to, you know, download a file, we see the progress bar, that sort of thing. Or we want to create a 3D world and we design it in one place and then we go explore it in another. We compile it and, you know, we write a program, right? We write the program, we compile it, we run it, and then we go look at the program running. Yeah. What's happening is between the time to the decision to act and the time when we acquire feedback, we're suddenly increasing this, we're, we're, we're increasing that time, we're injecting this uh, machine time where the machine gets input and then, you know, chugs along and then gives you output. And what's happening in these cases where we really notice like delays or we're waiting, I mean, we've all had that experience, right? It's like, come on, come on. Even like trying to, you know, sit down at a restaurant, getting a, re- getting a table or something like that, right? We have delays all over the place. And in general, we don't like them. We don't like waiting for them. And, but the question is, is how, how fast does that have to be between machine input and machine output mm. to give you the illusion that you are manipulating in real time? The example I want to give you that you're probably all aware of is moving the mouse on a, on a desktop uh, computer. Yeah. Right? Moving the mouse feels instantaneous, right? Yeah. It feels instantaneous. But there are other things that we've done that don't feel instantaneous, right? Whatever. We all know those other things. Right. The question is, what's the time? And the time is about 140 milliseconds. Mm. It's actually what I would consider pretty generous amount of time, considering that the 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 amount the, the time it takes to move my muscles and acquire feedback is 150 milliseconds. Essentially, what our brains have is the ability to almost double that, and we still believe that we're affecting the world instantaneously. Right. And what is cool about that? What's cool about that is our cognitive load drops, right? We don't have to, we don't have to work hard to now synchronize events that are coming way out of sync, right? I moved it, but I'm waiting for the move to take place. Did we talk about this last time you were on the show with uh, the problem you have with speech recognition? No, I may have, not last time for sure. I just, uh, we did not do that. We mainly focused on the biology of the eyes. Okay. So maybe this is something we were talking about just at your house or something. But uh, the, the problem oh, yeah. that you have with speech recognition is it takes too long to respond. Yeah, it does. It's, yeah. it is, it is, it's, it's wrong for that reason. And it's always going to have trouble 
for that reason, the time between your, 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 the, uh, the, uh, the taking the action, giving the command, getting it back, also just saying the command takes a yeah. while as well. What we really need, I've said, I did say this on the last show, what we really, really need is essentially a universal way to tap directly into our brains. And I'm first in line for that. And, you know, as soon as people stop thinking I'm wacko when I say I'm ready to pop open my skull and put um, sensors in it. But that's what I, that, that, that's where I think we need to be. We need, we need to be at that point because then you can think and, and immediately see the reaction. Well, you know, but then you have to have computers that will translate your thoughts into actions and how yeah. fast can that be? Yeah, well, that's, that's got to, uh, th- that technology is, is well, the... Believe it or not, I just got my emotive headset a couple days ago and uh, the new one is out. But even I remember using the old one, and the, you know that is still something that takes a lot of concentration and uh, does take time to respond. So I'm I'm with you that uh, someday, hopefully. But you know, to get back to your point about speech recognition, one of the things that you told me when we were talking about this, which was fascinating to me, was it's the difference between you thinking you did something and you're telling the computer to do something and it's doing it. And yes. that's a huge difference yes. psychologically, isn't it? Yes, it is. When, and it's right there at the 140 millisecond barrier. If I do something and it takes the computer 140 milliseconds to come back and give me that feedback, I believe I am making this happen. But right. if it takes more than 140 milliseconds, what happens in the brain is you conclude, I am making the computer make this happen. I'm, yeah. I'm making the computer and the computer's doing it. Right. And if it takes longer than a second, then that's when we start, the cognitive load goes up. We're like, what's going on? Doesn't feel right. It's sluggish. That's when you switch to another app. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's more than four and a half seconds, we're like, something is wrong. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's the problem. And, and that, that's why we have invented progress dialogues and little spinning, uh, little spinning, uh, progress indicators, that sort of thing to give you the reassurance that, hey, everything's happening. You're just going to have to you, wait. And you're not doing this. You know, you're going to have to wait. But uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to call Dwayne and figure out what really happened with Lawrence Welk and that dog. <laughs> and what? <the> burrito. <laughs> I should listen to the show more often. <laughs> Sounds awesome. <laughs> That's a reference from our other show. The other show. Yeah. You want to touch my burrito? Yeah. No. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. Woo! That's your cue, Mark. Woo! To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. And that little guy there who uh, is dancing around and prancing. Stop, Carl. That is based on our friend. Stop, Carl. Mark Miller. <laughs> that is total speculation. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> you told me. I didn't say anything. I was denying it the whole time. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Yuri Biller. Congratulations, Yuri. Congratulations. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. You just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from DevExpress. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, 
answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we love to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we love to ask our guests, even Mark Miller, if you had 5000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? I would, this is a little bit of a cheat, I think, because it's not something that's available right now, but I can put $5,000 on it and it down it down to reserve it. And it's a Tesla Model X is what it is. Ah, the Model X. Yeah. This thing is like pretty cool. It's got these uh, Falcon wing doors that come up off the side, but without like, like shooting out and breaking other cars next to you. Yeah. They fold as they go up. <laughs> yeah. They so fold they just, so, they fold just a little bit in as they go in. The thing can go from like zero to 60 in like 3.1 seconds. By the way, this is like a car for seven people. And so I've got like a big family wow. and yet it accelerates like it is uh, you know, a sports car. Wow. And, uh, and so this is, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Elon Musk and, uh, uh, the guy's like, you know, uh, super genius from my perspective. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm following these guys and this is, I think the, the car that is going to be the next one I get. Yeah. So that's my 5,000. Somewhat more than $5,000. Uh, yeah, I'm really, but the thing is, it's funny is they don't really tell you what the total price is when you reserve it. You just, you know, throw out your money. You so just put down a deposit. It, it might be that I get it for very little. It, we haven't really decided <laughs> the price. And they are supposed to be out this year too, like in 2015. Yeah, they did. They did say that. And so that's, I, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that come out. I, it's interesting too. The thing about the Tesla that, that blows my mind, if this is still true, I heard that they, they don't do any commercials. They don't do any advertising at all. No, I've never seen a tel- television ad or anything like that for them. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting. But yeah, and but the thing is, here's the thing though. My Facebook feed is filled with my peers who are loading their garages with Teslas and taking pictures and talking about how great they are, that sort of thing. Hmm. So, I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty compelling. Yeah, people are pretty excited about it. Yeah, here's an article on Bloomberg from June of this year saying the Model X starts to be delivered in the next four months. So that's, you know, September, October timeframe. It may not be very many units, but it'll be a start. The question is, will it sell enough? But it's worth knowing. I'm, I'm excited too. Well, that's the thing, right? You're, you're talking about when you're pushing the, you know, the beyond the bleeding edge of technology, technology, one of the things you also have to account for is how many of these can you make? How many, you know, and what's the price going to be? Will people buy them and pro- yeah. profitability, right? In other words, if I, if I get a whole bunch of scientists in a room, we can create the next most awesome thing. But the question is, how do we sell that the best way, right? I've, I have this, I experienced this on a, on a small level. I created this awesome bit of, bit of software called uh, Duplicate Code Detection and Consolidation. It consolidates duplicate code in an intelligent way. It's like crazy mm. futuristic stuff. Wow. And yet we it's it's just rolled up into code rush, right? right? And so it's like it's like this thing where a few people know about it and I use it you know, I use it um, every once in a while when I see that to consolidate it. But when you realize what's happening and just behind the scenes, it's like it's a phenomenally challenging problem to do, to solve. Yep. So we, you know, same thing happened. We get all, or not same thing, but the problem is you get all these scientists in or all these people, you know, brilliant people in, and we say, this is the greatest. We're pulling from the future, right? We're getting, moving ourselves even farther into the future, but then how do you sell it, right? That's a big part of any kind of venture like this. So Hmm. anyway. 
All right. So uh, where can we go from here? I mean, there's a million things we can talk about. It's really up to you what you want to well, I have two pick other, off. I have two other things. Um, uh, you can pick or we can do both, whatever. One is discoverability and the other one is path. And they're kind of both related. And I think what I want to do is talk about discoverability because it's kind of funnier. Uh, funnier well, let's, let's talk about, because I know the discoverability thing was one thing that uh, this particular company said another company wouldn't like so much in your oh, video. <laughs> tell me, tell us what you did that was so with discoverability? controversial with discoverability. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, let's see. I don't think I had any real, well, yeah, actually I do have a couple controversial examples. I guess we'll go ahead and name names there. My most, my, well, I guess we'll start with my most controversial example. I suppose we'll start with that. And that, right. in that it is, um, and it falls under the category. So it's Southwest Airlines is the company. Okay. And I'm in a Southwest Airlines bathroom and I'm looking for the flush button. And I'm looking around and then I see it. And it's a tiny little label on a tiny button. But right above it is a bigger sign that says flush with an arrow pointing to the t- tiny button. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a second. If you just made the button on the label on the button as big as the button it would be as big as the sign pointing to the button yeah right (laughs) you wouldn't have to create a separate sign pointing to it right but what happened clearly is they had you can see the evolution of this right they built the button first nobody saw it so then they put up the sign right they had a bunch of you know problems in the toilet and then so they said okay we'll fix it this way with a sticker yeah. Right. And that's not like the only time that happens. There've been incidences where people have been irradiated by, uh, by machines, uh, they've been over radiated by machines, uh, for, uh, used in radio surgery because the medical physicists didn't realize that they, he was using the smaller radiation beam that had to be calibrated differently from the larger radiation beam. Hmm. And so the company, the software company behind that also created a sticker and put on the machine that said, hey, uh, you know, read the manual or look at the, you know, be very careful. We call you- those dope stickers. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, okay, so, and and this is, and, and to be honest, I'm like totally struggling with a discoverability problem of my own, right? So discoverability, just to give everybody, you know, in, in case you haven't figured it out by context, discoverability is essentially the ability for your users to discover what they need to know, either the features or how to use the features of your software. Don't make me read the manual. Right. Yeah. So in the old days, it used to be RTFM, right? Read the manual. That's what it used to be. Um, and then we went to like online help, which was still people didn't want to do. Why didn't people want to do it? It has to do with the first, you know, those core rules, right? Efficiency. People know that it takes a t- long time to read. Right. Even if you're a fast reader, it takes a substance section of time to read. It takes even longer to find what you need to read in a large manual or book. Right. So that doesn't right. doesn't work. What 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 ended up happening is everybody started using Google for for the equivalent of online help because it was faster. Yep. Right. right? It was indexing everything, and you could get the results. If you're faster. having a problem, somebody probably made a video on YouTube. Yeah, there you go. You've got, you've got, uh, or they may, there may be something else, but, yep. but Google or Bing will find that for you. There have been discoverability shortcuts. There are discoverability pop-up dialogues. If you're a Visual Studio user, and my bet is a lot of folks listening in here are Visual Studio users, you might have stepped in, tried once while debugging to step into a line of code that had a property on it. 
And you might have seen a, a dialogue from Visual Studio, a modal dialogue pop up that said something like that had three paragraphs of text that said, hey, your step in request resulted in automatic step over property or operator. Another paragraph explaining it. And one more paragraph saying, hey, do you want to continue being notified when an automatic step over happens? Do you really want to be interrupted in your process and be see have the code obscured with this big dialogue with three paragraphs and a yes or no button on it? Do you really want that? So I can say yes if I want it, or I can say no, right? Mm -hmm. But it's these, it's these in-your-face interruption of flow modal dialogues. It's another approach to discoverability, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. None of these are great, really. There's and and when I said I have a discoverability problem of my own, you know, we're talking about Code Rush. Code Rush is a product with with a, a great deal amount of features and configuration issues. Yeah, and developers vary their configurations. C sharp developers in particular vary configuration. You know, there are different options and, and developers also vary in style, right? And so I'm still working to explore and find and create a discoverability solution that makes, that gives customers access to all the power without interfering at all in their flow. Yeah, that, that's one thing I found frustrating about Code Rush was the discoverability thing. And uh, it just, just having a huge array of options without really knowing why or what they are is is kind of frustrating. I don't I don't know as if there is a alternative to that besides education, right? Besides taking a class or having an interactive session or something like that where uh, you can go through all of these things. No, exactly. We have so we have we have customers who are like, you know, religious enthusiasts, right? Yeah. And then we have folks that try to get in but they don't have time to to see a video or they don't know where the video is mm -hmm. that sort of thing and then they they end up thinking okay I'm not sure there's anything there yeah right and yeah. and and so and so that's that's like a problem that we have and that's a problem that you know that that can be solved with a great solution for discoverability so that's something that I'm that that I am I'm putting a lot of thought to these days in terms of how do we solve this in the right way where everybody's going to be like okay I get it that sort of it's thing. not it's not enough to know about it it's enough, you've got to actually think of it at the time right you think about something like code rush like it's got to be in your reflexes it's almost like you need a training wheels mode that you can turn off you know after a while and and it is those modal things that say hey i noticed that you're doing this if you press this keystroke you can do that in one second. Yeah, we have tried. So we have a modeless version of this. Um, and in the past, I've created um, solutions for this is, that are similar kind of solutions where they're essentially watch what you're doing right. and using kind of, kind of some artificial intelligence, getting a sense of what you just did. Like say you write a few lines of code and then come back and say, oh, you can write that faster with this next time. Right. And so I've tried that and it's with varying degrees of success. Yeah. Right. Some people say, okay, it's good. But ultimately I am like, you know, I'm like really kind of down on a lot of the solutions that I've seen so far. And I'm, I'm, I, I have a sense of what the right solution is, but I haven't implemented it to the point where I'm like, where I can come to you and say, I know the right way to solve this problem. Yeah. Close, but I'm not there. Interesting yet. problem to have, yeah. especially the more complex and the more options and features you offer, the, the more, uh, more you need that. Yeah, it's like one of the things is, you know, one of the ideas is kind of similar to video games, right? Is that you 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 unlock features as the basic ones are understood and explored. Right. Right? Gamify it. Yeah, and 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 I, I've considered that as well. And ultimately I kind of was, you know, I ran a thought experiment and ended up in a dead end there. But it is, you know, there's there's a lot of exploration to do here. And I think, you know, one of the things that I that I'm really kind of leaning towards is this idea of simplification. It's similar 
to um, to the, the the gamification where we unlock over time. But it's more the idea where I say, okay, let's take all the features that we have and let's group them into like say three or five, you know, three basic features. Yeah. And then beyond that, maybe a few more beyond kind of thing that may be related. And then let's, let's start it from that approach right there, you know? And I, and so I'm still, still, still working on that, but that's, that's a, that's a real problem. That's a problem that I have in, in working to, working to solve. And it's, and in part, and you know, it, it's the problem was caused by not prioritizing discoverability at the beginning, but instead prioritizing efficiency of the developer. Well, that's the whole point with Code Rush, right? Like Code Rush is not supposed to necessarily be simple; it's supposed to be fast. Yeah. And now, now, by the way, though, so with all that said, yeah, so I've got problems. Yeah, Carl had problems, and we live right next to each other. And you'd think that we would, you know, spend time, and I'd show him and stuff like that, but it's never happened yet. But with all that said. One of the features we built actually solved the problem of discoverability and totally optimized efficiency. Sweet. And the feature is called um, IntelliRush, and it wraps around IntelliSense is what it does. Nice. But it also gives you filtering abilities. So I can say, I want to see only events, or I want to see only namespaces, or I want to see only interfaces, or only properties. It also We also added the ability to filter out hierarchically um, uh, to, slice, to get slices of the hierarchy. So I can say, I only want, I only want to see from uh, form and up or component and up or control and down below to my class. I only want to see pieces in there. And then you can cross slice as well. I can say, I only want to look at this, at this class and these events in this class. So all of those are features. But the challenge was, how do we optimize the keystrokes involved so you can get to those, what you want to see, you can slice and dice, right? Mm. without interfering with any existing keystroke functionality right. that's in there and likewise but still optimize it and and I feel like we hit it we nailed it and the the the, the secret answer to the question was to tap the control key so when it's up huh. and we added discoverability so when so when now what happens is when you see IntelliSense and Visual Studio with code rush up at the bottom it says tap control for options so we've got discoverability right yeah you tap that and then what happens is you get a little menu popping up with highlighted letters. So, so for example, I might have the word me- methods in there. It's not, it's not really a menu. It's kind of a hint kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and, and now I've got methods there with M highlighted. And now all I have to do is hit the letter M and I'll see only methods in the list. Right? If I want to see only events and I'm looking at just, you know, it's just popped up. I just tap control and then hit the letter E for events. Right, something like that. And so what's cool about that is now I'm down to two keystrokes. It's not a control holding the control key down and then hitting the E, right. which is harder to do. It's a time synchronous kind of thing. I have to, you know, release the control key before I hit anything else as an yeah. example. Right? It's just a tap and a tap. And it's simpler too. There's less force involved. You also were creating a keyboard, if I'm not mistaken, right? That like a customizable keyboard? Yep. That's I, another great idea for discoverability. Yeah, I'm about to work on part two of that. I have a the, the company that was uh, involved with that. Uh, yeah, by the way, my, that blog post that I put out there and creating it had like 100,000 hits on it. 100,000. Wow. wow. Well, that's total of all the pages, actually, because it was broken into five parts. So okay. that's, you guys are all like, wow, 100,000, but it's like about 25,000 or something on each. Okay. But that's a Kickstarter right there. Yeah, sure is. Um, okay. But what, at any rate, the, the company, you know, saw that blog post and they said, hey, we have a new model of it. Will you look at it? And they sent it to me. And I haven't looked at it yet, but it's got lights behind it. It's got more keys so I can, you know, do some stat, you know, kind of stat stuff, uh, status indicator if I wanted to do that. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm going to revisit that again in the future and put up another blog post on that. So that's, that is something that I'm looking at. Um, I'm still, you know, the, the, uh, the, ultimately though, if you're going to use another additional keyboard, it's got to be easy to hit. The keys have got to be easy to hit and the keys on this keyboard are, are require more force than I, than I want. It's, it's not something most people would notice, but if you're going to use something a lot, it's got to be effortless, right? Yeah. It's got to be just the slightest tap. All right. So to continue down this road of getting you in trouble, what was the, uh, what was the thing about office that, that was raised eyebrows? So, okay. So Microsoft office, uh, in 2000, I think 2007, uh, came out with, um, uh, it it came out with Microsoft office. And so, and this is a a true story. This happened to me. So I, 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 I installed that version of office, uh, from those days, I think it was Office 2007. Is yeah, what I think it is. so. I want Richard to totally fact check me on this because my memory. Ribbon, right? Yeah, the with the ribbon. It's got the ribbon in it, and I so I install it for the first time, and I'm working, and I'm like writing something, and I'm like, how do I print? And I'm like, okay, what well, doesn't matter? I'm just gonna keep writing, and I'm like, keep writing, 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 and I'm, I, I even want to say that I asked this question: How do I save? Where's the save button? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna just keep right. going. I'm gonna keep going, <laughs> right? And you know, for three days I do this, and the whole entire time for three days, the what we now know is the office button, what I just thought was like this glowing orb of kingdom or something in the yeah. upper left, was just glowing at me, right? It was animating the whole time. It was. I found it really distracting. I was like, God, what, what, what's going on at Microsoft, right? <laughs> some some programmer is like, Hey, I'm going to make this animate while people work user software. Never occurred to you that it's actually signaling you to to hover over it or press it or anything. No, it didn't. Until the third day, I was so mad, I was going to just decide I was going to click it to death. I was just going to just get my mouse and I'm going to just click it. And, and I <laughs> if I my, click it enough, maybe it'll die. Is that where you were going? <laughs> Look, I'm open to all possibilities, Richard. <laughs> I already said that. <laughs> so I take the mouse, I move it over, and it says, hey, click here if you want to print and save and do all those other things. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and so you, and, and, and I talk about it in the course, right? I tell the story and I talk about it in the course because it's useful. It's useful for a couple of reasons. But, but one of the things is, is that, you know, the question is, what happened, right? How did that, how did we get to that spot, right? We know that Microsoft put hundreds of millions of dollars into the design research development for the Office 2007 interface that it took about four years to do. We know that they analyzed 10,000 plus hours of video showing customers using Office and like something like 3 billion data sessions from Office users as well, Yeah. right? So we know that a lot of effort went into the ribbon, right? But this thing was this glowing, you know, button that says, hey, hover over me, click me, is, 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 stands apart from the elegance of the ribbon in terms of its purpose was to help you discover what's going on, right? In fact, if you search for Microsoft uh, Office button, I think is the search term. I've, it's been months since I've done this. But what happens is, is you get a bunch of pages that come up with pictures of it, with arrows pointing to it, with things like, here's the sucker or whatever. <laughs> this is the guy you want to push. You know, people remember this thing that was bugging you? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There's, there's, there's gotta be 20 different ones up there that show up in the first one or two pages of a, of an image. Well, you search. know why they made it a circular button because it is essentially a hamburger menu, but hamburgers are round. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. And if you look at it on the side. And then, and then somebody said, well, we can't make it look like a hamburger. That's going to be kind of silly. That would be crazy. No, we would do that. All right. Well, then we'll just make it glow and look kind of shiny. Like it's got some cheese on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> So I don't know why that other company wanted me to not talk about this company, but you know, so anyway, so, so this is like an example of what kind of content is in the course is that I'm, I actually talk about problems in general. The only problem that I talk about that still exists to my knowledge, everybody's essentially fixed the problem. So I talk about problems in the past. Okay. Right. But the only problem that I'm, that, that, uh, well, I said that it's not entirely true. There are a few Southwest, Air, Southwest Airlines still has some, some real problems in its bathrooms. Not only... <laughs> Not only that one sign. I'm really only talking signage. Functionally, I'm sure everything is fine. <laughs> Holy crap. I'm not sure where I was going. Does anybody know where I was going? I was yeah, like, oh, just oh, some of the other more controversial oh, things. So, yeah. so the other one, I na- I totally nailed these guys, and these guys should know better. It's Apple. So Apple, this happens right now with my iPad as of today still. If I go and rent a movie on iTunes, and then I want to watch it, right? Say I rent The Book of Life right? And I go to watch it. I see all, I get to pick it from a list of all movies I've ever rented from iTunes. Yeah. So the more movies I rent from iTunes, this is on my iPad, right? So the more movies I rent, the more noise is introduced. Right. On top of that, the movie, The Book of Life is not at the beginning in the B's oh, alphabetically. No, they're alphabetically ordered. Of course they are. Not in order of order. Not in order of the or of the of the title that you think it starts with would be Book of Life. It's in the T's with everything that starts with the. Uh. Right? And so it takes forever. And I actually show this. I said I I I in the course I've got the iPad. I rent the I rent the movie. I go, let's go find it. And I'm scrolling up and down through it. And you can see it. It's actually this super cool talk about production value, Carl. I think I don't know if you saw this movie or not, but what I did I did with it is I shot I used two cameras to essentially shoot it. And so I was able to take my hand and uh, render it at half opacity. So it wasn't obscuring what the what was behind. Hmm. And so you can see my fingers moving up and down. You see my fingers over the UI moving up and down. We're trying to find it. It takes a long time to find it. And I'm demonstrating it's essentially a problem that's encouraging people not to buy or rent from iTunes. And it's an absolute mistake and it should be fixed. And they haven't fixed it yet. But they really don't care because, you know, their customers are very loyal and will put up with stuff like that no matter what. Uh, Well, no, I think they should care because even though you say that, it's a frictional force. And frictional forces have impact on revenue. They absolutely do. They may not go to somebody else, but they won't. They'll buy fewer products. Yes, exactly. They'll buy more at another place. That's the thing. Frictional forces, if your customer base is large, they have an impact on revenue. That's why UI is so important. That's why great design is so important. Yeah. Are we going to leave it there or you got anything else that you can give us in the next five minutes? Um, I'd say just go, if you want to go out to sgui.com, I just want to plug that site, Science of Great UI. I just got sgui.com is what it is. You go out there. And you can see a, a preview of the course. And as soon as that thing is published and available somewhere, I will put a link out there and, and get that to you. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at GreatUI. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Carl. Richard. Always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, maybe we'll get back to that other show someday soon. All right. Thank you for listening to .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, 
and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.